0: I'm Louise Chantal, I'm the new Chief Executive at the Oxford Playhouse. Uh, We're delighted to see you and we're absolutely delighted to have these wonderful writers here with us today as part of the Humanitas program. Um, as some of you may know, I'm, I've only been here four months, and I know, I've, I'm beginning to feel that I'm pushing it a bit to say I'm still new. You know, I'm the new chief exec. But actually, this is the very first time I've stood on this stage. So <laughs> I'm new enough for that, yes. so that'll do for me. <laughs> um, the other thing that I want to say is that uh, I went to the um, one of D- David's events on Wednesday night, and it's a, it was so exciting to see David a- April D'Angelis, and David Gregg, who's all three of whose work I've um, admired for a long time, doing a performance, doing doing an event in Oxford, and this. The whole programme this week, I think, has been incredibly exciting. I don't know how many of you have managed to get to more than one event, but it's just been a real privilege, and we want to thank everyone involved in the Humanitas um, programme for that. Um, I look at these three writers, and without wanting to go into my own personal biography, uh, it's a little bit like seeing my life of the last 20 years in theatre in front of me. Um, a bit more than 20 years actually if I think about this <laughs> uh, I went to um, I, w- I got in a minibus from Bradford Grammar School and went to Newcastle to see the RSC production of Nicholas Nickleby adapted by David Edgar and it was of—it was a really formative experience I think I was about 15, 14 and it was, some, it was an event that it showed me what th- what different worlds could be created on stage and what theatre could be, um, and how extraordinary actors can be without great amounts of set, without just with sheer imagination, and the power of the written word. Um, it was an incredibly important event. I w- obviously developed a theatre, in, um, an interesting theatre, and I remember going for the first time to the National Theatre to see Pravda and see um, Romans Britain. And, you know, those were incredibly important plays by Howard Brenton, which changed, actually changed my perception, and I think many other people's, of what theatre could be in terms of speaking truth to power and in terms of speaking, of taking very controversial, very contemporary... um, um, Subjects um, and and really you know, giving it a great shake. I mean, it feels like a, a different deferential diff, age now. To think that at the time, the um, Pravda was on the national news because somebody had dared to put on a play that looked with a character that looked a bit like Rupert Murdoch and was clearly Rupert Murdoch. I mean, we you know we live in an age now with in um, theatre all the time, but then it was a real event. And then in terms of my own life, I have to say that I have shared two extraordinary evenings um, with Bryony Lavery, one of my absolute favourite writers. We were just talking about a production we did with a a wonderful touring company, Pentabus Theatre in the Midlands. And it was an outdoor production, um, an adaptation of Mary Webb's Precious Bane, a beautiful elegiac love story. And we did it in amazing fields, amazing um, stately homes. We had a community choir of 60 in each venue, didn't we? And at the end of the show, the couple who had fell in love came on, in a white, on a white horse. It was kind of perfect. And the other evening I spent with you, Brian, it was probably slightly less memorable, but no less enjoyable, when we both got quite drunk in New York. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Yeah,
1: he that did. wasn't me, Louise. I don't think
0: it so was. <laughs> <laughs> I'd um, but what, that, yeah. what what I love about Bryony's work is she, it's so it's such an extraordinary range. You know, she's managed, she does these brilliant literary adaptations like *Precious Bane* and like *Treasure Island* at the National right now, very successful. But she also has worked with some of the most um, iconic younger, emerging companies over the last decade, companies like Frantic Assembly, um, and I've just forgotten which one, Sound and Fury, for Kursk, companies that have changed the aesthetic of theatre, I think, for us all, and again, changed the idea of what theatre can be. So I am thoroughly delighted that our guests are here tonight. I need to just thank... I can't see. Um, The Humanitas, I need to tell you. The Humanitas is a series of visiting professorships at Oxford and Cambridge intended to bring leading practitioners and scholars to both universities to address major themes in the arts, social scientists and humanities. Created by Lord Weidenfeld, the programme is managed and funded by the Weidenfeld Hoffman Trust with the support of a series of generous benefactors and coordinated in Oxford by Torch, which is a wonderful organisation, which, um, which is the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. And the Visiting Professorship in Drama has been made possible by the generous support of Andre Hoffman. Right, I'm leaving. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Um, Good evening, if anybody's come a bit early, we're not about to burst into song. Um, West Side Story starts at half past seven. In in addition to the biographies of of my two guests that that, uh, Louise has has already referred to, and indeed including one or two that she has, uh, what we want to initially talk about this evening is is ways that writers collaborate, both with, uh, playwrights collaborate both with each other and indeed with, with companies. Uh, and both Brani and Howard have got rich experience of of, of of doing that. And I'd like to start by talking a bit about writers collaborating with other writers, um, which was, I think, one of the... I mean, obviously goes back to Bermont and Fletcher and, and, and beyond, um, but was one of the kind of experimental features of the age in which... Uh, well, all three of us, uh, started writing in, 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 in the 1970s. Uh, I was um, a young cub reporter on the Brantford Telegraph and Argus, and left it in order to participate in a project that Howard invited me to participate called England's Island, which was seven writers who came together to write a play about uh, the then uh, extremely violent and extremely threatening situation in Northern Ireland in the year of, of direct rule and. Uh, the year after an in, 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 internment. Um, Howard then went on to write on a one-to-one basis with a, with a, a series of writers, Tundur Koli, uh Tariq Ali, Me, in a play uh, which was intended to be a response to the fanfare for Europe, which was the cultural uh, event festival which, which marked our accession to the economic uh, to, to the uh, to, to the common market in, in in 1973. And our play was at the Royal Court Theatre upstairs, and was called A Fart for Europe. Uh, and the most subtle thing about it was the title. <laughs> and I think I think enough water has gone under the bridge to be able to report now in public that David Hare's response to it was, I think you brought out the worst in each other. <laughs> um, uh, Howard and, and, and David brought about the best in each other in, in, uh, in, in two plays. One was Brassneck uh, at the Nottingham Playhouse, uh, which was a play about local government corruption, put uh, in a historical context, like many plays of the time. A play that started uh, 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 at the end of the Second World War and then came up, up to date, uh, and was part of Richard Eyre's um, noble and extraordinary season of new work. in in, at the Nottingham Playhouse, uh, and then the second one being Pravda, uh, uh, which Louise referred to, the play loosely about a a, 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 a dominant um, uh, newspaper magnate from an English-speaking country um, who comes here and takes over a, a, a an establishment newspaper and a popular newspaper, and by the end, like the end of uh, Animal Farm, you can't tell the difference. So... Th- but could I start, Howard, by asking a bit about working one-to-one with people, and what, you know, what difference that makes to the proceeding of writing?
3: You, you do it, because um, you, you have a conversation We say, my God, it would be great to see a play about not Rupert Murdoch. And say, I can't do that myself, can you, David? How on earth could we write? We couldn't do it individually. So we say, let's do it together. And also, writing together is, is basically for comedy works with two play, playwrights, because each gag has to get by both of you, yes. you know? And um, so it's, like, it's, like, it's not quite like being a playwright. It's more like being a showmaker. You say, I'd love to go to the theatre and see this, and so you concoct it between you. And you usually it's best done quickly... And in a rush of enthusiasm and rush of blood to the head. When we wrote Pravda, we rented a flat down in Brighton. David would drive down, I went down by train, and we stayed three nights a week and left the script and the typewriter in the flat. And after three weeks, we'd done it. You know, the first drop, we knocked it around a bit after that. But it, that's, that's the spirit of collaborating on a play to say, let's make a show we'd like to see. And it's usually comic. Or it's a, a fire engine uh, satirical response. Mm-hmm. Like Terek Ali and I wrote a, when, when Selman Rushdie had the fatwa put upon him, we wrote a quick response. It was on at the Royal Court within writing and rehearsing in a week. Um, again, that's best concocted t- together, do you
2: say? Now, now, you say you left the typewriter. Yes. Um, does that imply that, like England's Ireland, in which, in which people... you know, I think there was a rule that no one individual yes. would write a scene, but we didn't write them as seven yeah. people, that it was twos and threes. Um, I mean, do, do you... Um, did you write Pravda and, and Brassneck literally line for line together like you'd write a... Yes, line to line together, but
3: one would be on the typewriter and then you'd swap. Yes. And, oddly, he who is not on the typewriter was the most powerful. And why is that? Because you had to fiddle around with this <laughs> right. thing which went ping in those days, you know? Um, and, there's some, so it's, and then you'd swap. Um, if, if a joke died, you know, between you, you yeah. thought, more, well, it wouldn't and, go. And, and did you structure it beforehand? Um, yes, but it was quite simple because we had a model which is a hidden model, like we did with Brasneck. With Brasneck, the first play we collaborated on, the model was Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks. Right. So that was hidden, you know, it was a family saga. And then I also had just read a book about the borders. Right. So we called them Bagley and there was Lucy Bagley, Cesare became Sydney, right. you know, so we worked it through like that. So you have a, a broad model. And with Pravda, the model was Faust, right. because the, there's a young newspaper uh, editor who does a Faustian deal with the not-Rupert Murdoch figure, yeah, yeah. and uh, then the establishment does a Faustian deal with him. But you, you, know. s- you say that, and uh, it's challenging exactly on, on,
2: on Brasnick, which is an incredibly complicated and, and beautiful structure. I mean, there's lots of – the first act is a kind of chronicle, seven or eight scenes, the second act is all in, on one afternoon when the, the company that has been corruptly built up yes. goes apart and starts with, with, a, with uh, the stage direction, a horse gallops onto the stage. And then Act Three had two scenes, as I recollect. Um, but, you know, it, 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 was, it was a kind of wrought structure. I mean, it didn't feel as if it kind of just burnt out of a, of a weak... I mean, it didn't feel improvised. It felt quite. No, but well you put knew together. where you were
3: going because yes. you had the Buddenbrooks thing, which is a, it's a generational story. Buddenbrooks, you know, uh, and it's about how the second and third generation of a great business ruin the business. They they're not the son and the grandsons are not up to it. Yes. It's a common. Yes. You know, yes. I remember actually meeting Lord Rothschild once and uh, I, I, I asked him about this and he said yes it's a nightmare the further generations are a nightmare so and so that's where where we um, yeah we, we got the shape from really and w- is there anything we made a mistake though with right. Brassneck, which is we had this wonderful character um, who is the old man who founded everything and no one he just cut his way through the town he got into the local lodge he became mayor you know he could do anything and we killed him off after act 1 yeah, and the, we did think that was a mistake the, the, the,
2: yes. the, it's, it's just so beautiful that yeah. the, the end of the act is, is his collapse of the heart attack during his daughter's wedding and the last line of the first act if that's what they do for the wedding what the hell are they going to do for the funeral yes, <laughs> yes. um brani you've you've collaborated with um, uh, with with the National Theatre, of Brent, mm-hmm. uh, and with their series of of uh, two handed versions of vast uh, of vast vast works, uh, you've yeah. done Zulu Black Hole of Calcutta, and Gossadamarang, and you were also collaborating with, of course, one of the members of the cast. How did that work?
1: Um- beautifully without incident. Um, Obviously, I am lying. Actually, it worked terribly well because, as Howard says, the the premise of um, the National Theatre of Brent was that two men in tuxedos and shiny shoes would do something impossible and that the audience would help by playing the entire Zulu war. Um, army or something Um, but it it worked I think because it's comedy comedy, and there were three people saying whether something was funny Mm. or not Um, we did a lot of workshops where we um, we would decide that we're in for example Black Hole of Calcutta we would decide that we were in a Mughal Fort and each of us would choose a room because we'd read something that those forts had had you'd go into a room and there'd be like 50 beds. And so we all decided what we would walk in and see was in our room. And of course, I think um, Patrick, who was my co-writer and played a character called Desmond Olivier Dingle um, from Brent, he His room, he went in, and it was a room of slot machines. And that obviously generates wonderful scenes. But
2: working with somebody who's going to perform half of it... Yes. uh, I mean, did you feel you were being brought in as, you know, a a, a brilliant, um, great catch uh, (laughs) technician, as it were, to, to, as it were, continue a tradition that had already happened?
1: Or well, because, because it, the, the company had a sort of myth about them, they always referred, referred to me as Miss Brown, the typist. Right, right. Um, and played on the fact that I was, I was merely typing out yeah. their great ideas. And we knew it was a fiction, but it, it kind of worked until later, you know, on a Friday afternoon, and then there'd be fights and... People ranting and but it, it works, I mean you never know who's going to work as, as a co-writer do you
2: yeah and d- d- did either of you feel that it was helpful to your individual writing? I mean, did either of you feel that it working with somebody else uh, i mean you've sort of argued that it's a very specific kind of project, but obviously it's a project and I'd argue that you know Pravda is one of the you know important plays of the last quarter of a century, and it's being more than that now, and it's being, you know, it is revived, uh, and, you know, it's, 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 it's entered the canon. But did you come... I mean, I have to say, having, you know, as I say, my first job as a professional playwright or my first job as a, a professional playwright who wasn't employed at anything else was was working with Snoo Wilson and you and David Hare, and that was an extraordinary learning experience. Uh, but did you... Do you think you changed as a writer as a result of having done so much of that work?
3: Well, it's, it's strange collaborations. Uh, it's not really your voice. Uh, it's like a, um, a, a third person is present. I'm sorry I'm getting mystical oh, about this. But there's a kind of David Hare or... or uh, it's a David Brenton or Howard Hare uh, who, whose voice is... is play and it's not quite David's voice or mine. And indeed we can't remember quite what lines we wrote. Mm. And we're saying was that yours or was that mine? It was revived at Chichester a few yeah. years ago. And we were it was bewildering saying, that's that was a rather good line, wasn't it? Was it yours or mine? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, so it's a very odd process. And it is it is very much um uh I won't say get pissed and do it, because we didn't do it like that. But it has that spirit to it, you know. It's mm-hmm. like a party time.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, uh, and uh, did do, you... Doing a collaboration. But it's good. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, no, and I, th- I think yeah. it liberates you. The, yeah. the showmanship element is very
2: good were for you, you, you know, Were you, you know? conscious? I mean, joking apart about bringing out... I mean, obviously, the, 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 the opportunity is also the danger. You know, you could have two people in a room... Who, who, who kind of collude in thinking yeah. stuff is yes. really funny, which is yes. I mean, it can go the other, other way. And I mean, joking apart about, about us bringing out the worst in each other in a fart for Europe. Uh, I mean, did you sense that you were a corrective? I mean, did you sense, no, David, you're not going to do that thing which you always do?
3: No, I don't think you're quite in control. Um, I mean, with Pravda, we didn't know if it was funny or not. And when we had the final dress rehearsal a lot of people from the theatre came in to watch it, and there was not a titter. And David Hare and I looked at each other and I thought, oh, God, you know. <laughs> and then on the first preview, there was so much laughter, lines were getting lost, and the, the actors were like surfers trying to control the laughter, you know, on, on boards, you know. And we then, we then went like, like, like you have to do with a show that's too funny, went and suppressed laughs in it, yes. indeed, you know, um, which actors can be do very also easily. also that, because of the, pa- the... Yes. But so you're not quite in control of it. No. There was another show I wrote with Tarek Ali at the Tricycle Theatre called Ugly Rumours, which was a satire on the then one-year-old Blair government. And we... And, God, West End money came in. We were going to transfer. The actual theatre was set up. Everyone thought it was going to be great. We had about eight previews, which were rocked with laughter. On the first night, seventy-five critics came into the little theatre, and it was mortifyingly bad. You know, I mean, it was just silent, and uh, the West End money disappeared, and no one would look you in the eye, and it was awful. And uh, so we were never quite. You're never quite in control. You know. that, I, I, yeah. really it it occurs
1: to me that, that uh, working with a live collaborator is, is not what I do now, but I always, when I'm doing an adaptation, I always think, yeah, I always think, like Stevenson, he's the main writer, yeah, um, and I'm the assistant. And that's how I start off, but I'm, it's, it's like all about Eve. I take over. Yes. Cuz you were
2: quite when we were talking about Brian's brilliant adaptation Treasure Island I was saying that you know it, it's it's constructed as they say like a watch and the uh, the sort of set-ups and payoffs and things that are mentioned in act 1 which then come back with additional resonance you know, and I hadn't reread Treasure Island but I, I I did think to myself it's much looser than that isn't it and I was it was indeed confirmed that that that, that, that was a lot more because than Because the
1: wonderful thing is that Stevenson absolutely agreed with me. Because he died some 200 years ago, um, and I've worked, I've, I've, I've adapted live um, writers' books and um, and dead, and I, I now I'd much rather work with dead writers <laughs> yeah. because it's they, they they agree with me, you know. Um, so you so
2: you'll li- you're like the director of a major British theatre through most of the latter half of the 20th century you'd prefer to work with dead writers than live ones.
1: Absolutely, yes. Um.
2: Howard, in, in um, there's the, one relationship which, which you've referred to because uh, obviously Tundi was a playwright, David is a playwright Tarek wasn't and I mean was that a different relationship working with a political activist and novelist and Commentator, but somebody who hadn't actually written a play before.
3: Yes, I mean, the, the I, I don't know how many I've done with him. We did a big one at the RSC about uh, the, the fall of Gorbachev, about the Gorbachev era. Mo- Moscow girl. Yeah, and uh, we we did the and the first, in a way, the most successful one was uh, was um, was the the one about uh, Selman for Selman Rushdie. Yes. that was the most successful, really. Um, but, no, we, we, we were aware that we were write, deliberately writing satires. I used to call them squibs, and Tarek said, oh, they're a bit better than squibs. But but, but the attitude was a kind of fire engine which would go and pour petrol on something. Yes, that, yes. Was, that was what we were after. I mean, they were t- deliberately troublemaking little shows. We did one about Ken Livingstone when he was getting elected mm-hmm. called Snogging Ken, you know? They were satires. Um, and the satires work really when the audience agrees with them. Yes. Sir. <laughs> and uh, they're written to cheer up the troops, really. So, so we were very aware that that was the attitude. Um, Andy de la Tour helped with one. But, uh, but no, Tarek, Tarek's a very gifted guy. And in this country, you know, you say, well, he can't be both a political activist and a historian, which he is, and a good journalist and a novelist, which he is, but he is, yeah. you know, his tall poppy syndrome has been uh, bad for him a bit, you know, so he's well capable of turning his hand to
2: yeah.
3: uh, the odd scene or two.
2: And you did, you did it the same system, you, 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 you yes. wrote together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and very fast. Bryony, you and I, and Howard, perhaps to a slightly less extent but not much, worked in the 70s with, with, with small, scale collective companies, with yes. companies that were set up with an ideology of democracy and uh, provided, I think, some quite long-lasting challenges to the way that plays are made. I think, I think yeah. one of the things we did was transform the atmosphere in the rehearsal room of major national companies when the actors who'd started out working for Gay Sweatshop or yeah. Joint Stock or Monster's Regiment or whoever it was, kind of, you know, it would never be the same again in in the rehearsal room. I mean, d- did you work with those with, with those companies that you were working with in the 70s? Did you work collaboratively? I mean, d- did you...
1: Uh, I think my 70s, I was the least collaborative <laughs> I've ever been um, because... Um, I found the collective nature of, of making, um, plays, because I was, um, younger and, um, stupider, I think, um, that I, I was very protective of my work, and I, I didn't understand the notion of rewriting, so... I think when it was a collective where you had to de- discuss it and agree about everything before it went forward, it was much easier and it was very nice if um, I produced a script because everybody thought, phew, now we can, we can actually rehearse it. So I was, I was quite, don't touch my work, which oh, right. it, it was in... And you, you
2: were allowed to get away with that? Or you're saying there was such relief that there was a script to work on? That
1: well, it, if it was good, which it wasn't always, yeah. um, it it was a relief. And if it wasn't, um, I I think I got pouty and cried or something or stamped a bit um, because I I was learning what would be the process of of how I wanted to be as a playwright in a rehearsal room or in a making process so it's really early days for me and um and, and so I that was a time when my scripts changed much less from my first draft to the rehearsal
2: and copy. is that also for I think it is with me a, a function of, of growing confidence that you actually because I think one of the things about having the re- writer in the rehearsal room and I always say this and I should. Keep saying it that it is due to the Theatre Writers Union and the Writers Guild, which now incorporates it, uh, that we are the only country in the world in which writers not only have the right to be in the rehearsal room, but to be paid for so being. And 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 we do that because we want to say the writer has a role in the rehearsal room, which isn't just protecting their baby. Yeah. I mean, they're not just there as the playwright. They're there with a very particular role, which to a certain extent overlaps with. Dramaturgy, but is about contributing to a process, and that actually, um, uh, you know, the, the the sacred author god mystique of the writer is destroyed pretty quickly when they're in the rehearsal Yes, um, because they're asked questions, they forget their own plot, they they misname their characters, uh, and and that's before you get onto the fact that, you know, as Tom Stoppard famously put it, you know. He feels like somebody coming through an airport and they open his luggage and there's all sorts of things he had no memory of packing at yes. all. You know. uh, even even before the post structuralists get onto it and say and, uh, say that your view of your own work is the least interesting the, the least interesting aspect of it but but i think I, I think as you go on, you get more confident about the idea that you know, I think you write shorter stage directions, you specify
1: less, and you become more confident that well, that process will make the work. I, I learned this valuable lesson. Um, I was doing a play Stockholm with, with Frantic Assembly, and um, one of the directors asked if we minded having um, an anthropologist observe us for a week. And... <laughs> <laughs> and so we were rehearsing, but also this anthropologist was, you know, watching us. And every now and go, and you think, what have I done? And at the end, he talked about what had happened and what he'd seen. And he said the difference between he was an academic, and he said that academics tore at an argument and were quite combative, um, but we. Um, we behaved like, um, I think, some the, twi- the two Kings version of Polynesia, um, in that um, we made a level playing field. It made that although there was very, very obviously two points of power in the room, which was the directors mm. and the writer, the rehearsal space was about making everybody equal in what they could say or when they could comment um, and that the rehearsal did this by having jokes and um, telling stories and and talking about people they knew um, because you're making something that doesn't exist yeah. so you have to yeah. you have to make a room that is capable of making something invisible um, and the thing I took away was, was that um, I hadn't really identified myself as a power source until right. the anthropologist told me. And, and then it suddenly occurred to me that if you just listen in rehearsal and then you go away and, and, and take that power back as soon as you start working on
2: any and, rewrite uh, of the script. And were you collabor- I mean, were you in the room as a writer? I mean, in other words, you know, if you're if you're sitting down talking about how a play is going to look, and you're talking to the lighting designer and the set designer and the director and the costume designer, then then you are, you know, it's a series of skills meeting together for a common object. There's another way of looking at it, which is, you know your own particular set of skills and perhaps your own particular set of concerns kind of meld into a general, um, into something rather like your third person. You know, that it melds into a, into a collective theatre maker who is, who is really none of, none of the people who are actually there.
1: I think the first thing you're doing, uh, the first thing I'm doing, and I don't know if, if you two do, is, is I'm... Losing my attitude. I, I need to get rid of my attitude, mm. and I need to listen, rather than anything else. And so it
2: is trans. Work, I mean, I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk about one thing sure. before getting on to frantic. But but I think I think that's fascinating. That that frantic is that um, you know dissolving of because uh, we were talking earlier about do you you know do you tick each other off. Now I have to say, interestingly. Uh, the latest experience that I've had about writing collectively was with my wife, who's a playwright, yeah. And uh, we wrote a play together, and it consisted a great deal of ticking off i mean I, you know in, in other words, in other words, I was constantly being told, "Oh no, don 't do that," and this is far too long and I know you think the great political scene it was a community play set in the nineteenth century you know the, 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 the great huge political scene is 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 absolutely marvelous, but it goes on forever, and you know certain tricks and tropes, which she knows obviously quite well because you sat through a lot of the stuff um, You know, she was uh, very determined. And it did create a third writer, absolutely. And people who read it, we did write it. We wrote two scenes separately. Um, And then we started writing the third scene, which brought characters from the two milieu together. Uh, And we we never went back to writing anything individually. And it did create a a third person. Talking about- sorry,
1: you're still together, aren't you? We are still together, very much so. (laughs)
2: Uh, you know, and 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 open for business. <laughs> um,
1: that would be I, a good mix, you and Steph. Yes.
2: Um, one of the um, sorry, it's Stephanie Dale. If I forgot to mention the who's uh, just done a brilliant adaptation of Alice in Wonderland at, at Chester, uh, and as we're surrounded by brilliant adapters of Christmas work,
1: um,
2: Howard, it, the, the, there's a whole s- series of of ways that. Of models, really, of playwrights working with companies, and I think the most, probably the most durable, but retaining, you know, their individuality and, and, and the talents that, and skills that they bring to it, and probably the most durable is 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 the joint stock method, which is the method that Max Stafford Clark developed, yes. which basically collectivized research and development. Yes. And you did it with with with, with a, a brilliant play about the derby called Epsom yeah. Downs. Yeah. Talk about that a bit.
3: Well, yes, we did. It's, it was a play called Epsom Downs. It was set. I was to be set on. Um, it was my idea. I took it to them, mm. and uh, I had to. Um, I think they had some. They were talking some other playwrights. So first, I was auditioned. <laughs> said, so what do you have to offer? I said, well, I've got this play. I want to write this play called Epsom Downs, set on Derby Day um, uh, um, uh, next year or this year. No. And um, I then got the word saying, yes, we want to do your play. So what we did then, you you go first. The first thing you do is to go to do research. We went around. We talked to trainers. Doors open for us. Who's
2: the we at this point? The whole company. Right, so it's the company of actors. There
3: were were eight
2: actors. And it's the company of actors who's going to do the play.
3: And all eight of us, or at least who was available, will go off and we talked to famous trainers, jockeys. We went racing Um, in uh, rehearsals. And then then you start improvising material. And I'll come in each day saying, scene about this or what and they'd improvise it. It was very messy, it was very broad, right? There were... Max Stafford-Clark was a bit of a devil, Max. You know, he, he had betting breaks. So, <laughs> so the actors would go off to betting shops, put bets on, you know, and then were tot up at the end of, uh, end of the week, you know? So, so that, that was a whole particular research period. We were going to the races. We were talking to people. We were improvising in the rehearsal room. And so, they then said, "Right now, go. Right now is the play's going to be written." And I went away and wrote the play. I think in about three weeks. Mm-hmm. Then formal rehearsals began, and it was my play. You know. But how? What, I,
2: what did you take? I mean, did, for example, did you get lines after the improvisations? Did you get situations and scenes?
3: Some, some. But you you sort of deepened ideas, you know. I I, I was very interested in, um, when when we finally went to the Derby, thank God, it was um, a classic Derby. Um, A a, a wonderful race. And uh, we all bet on the horses. I thought thought because of my inside knowledge, I knew which horse would win. It was a horse called Million Dollar Man and came last. Um, but to, so so, and we'd seen many things at the Derby. We improvised on things we'd seen. I was very interested in religious preachers there. We went and talked to to the gypsies. who were there a lot. Had our fortunes told, and uh, we pulled that knowledge, and improvised scenes around, you know, what we'd seen. Yeah. It didn't and, and then um, I went away and wrote the play. But I injected my own characters in. Opener. And then there was no questioning to it. They all happily sort of rehearsed for the four weeks, and on it went at the Roundhouse.
2: Actually. There's an interesting. I, I did a play <laughs> about citizenship tests um, called Testing the Echo, and it was just it was seven different stories of people who yeah. wanted to become British citizens for various reasons, and, and we we did it with with out of Joint, which is the successor company to, to Joint Stock. Uh, with with a group of actors not all of whom, which is sad in a way but but, but most of whom ended up actually not most I think about half of whom ended up in in the play Uh, but no no country uh, does uh, the citizenship test um, verbally Uh, they all, you know, you sit down and write or in fact in in Britain you do it on a computer Um, so we did improvisations which were about um, which were, we're, we're verbalising it. Let's pretend this is an interview, and because I was interested in the fact that the, the di- different countries do their citizenship test in very different ways. Um, you know, the Americans, it's all about constitution. In Canada, it's all about the environment. In Germany, it's all about literature. And here, it was all about how you apply for Social Security <laughs> um, and, and, and how you should be very suspicious of your neighbours, um, you know. Um, concept, concepts to understand from this chapter, mugging. Um, I think it's intended to put people off. But, um, but actually, by embodying the questioner, you, uh, by acting the, the questioner, which one was never going to use in the play because it's not like that, you were, of course, creating what would happen if you embodied the text as a person, uh, which then became very important. That, the, 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 as it were, the English citizenship became a character in the same way you m- may not remember in England's Ireland um, when the British troops before the British troops were allowed to fire on anybody, they had to look at a yellow card yes I and remember the yellow that. card was the, the list of, yes. of, of, of reasons why bit you could fire and there's a you know we, we embodied the yellow card as a character, as yes, you, as you in Churchill play embodied black. Black dog, which was Churchill's word for his own uh, own depression. So actually, it was it was it was this particular example was brilliant for me because it gave me a great idea. It actually gave me a sort of spirit and a character, but from an improvisation that I was never directly going to use. Yes. And 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 I mean, did you feel? I mean, did you feel that you were taking your? I mean, it's your idea, as you say, your idea back from the actors in order to... No,
3: I, I found that we made a huge landscape, populated landscape, full of insights, characters, strange things, would have made it all together. And that it was my job as, as as playwright to to make the play of that landscape. Right. And then they accepted it. They were... dear, It was a wonderful company. They were in a, a deep Maoist phase then. Look. And... Uh, and uh, I, you know, the idea was they they, they all have equal parts, and uh, they they actually counted the lines. So there were there, there were nine, there was eight actors. I wrote six parts for each of them. So there were forty-eight characters, and they actually did go through saying one of three, two, one. <laughs> but that's, well, that's, that's a very strange development, Maoism, really. Yes. If, you,
2: <laughs> yes. if you do a community play, which is the the form of play that I did with with, with Steph, you know, where you've got a hundred characters and a hundred actors, and they're not all going to be as good as each other. But the principle is that you have everybody has one line in Act One and one line ah, in Act Two. Yes. If there's a hundred of them, that's two hundred <laughs> lines before you've told a word yes. of the story. Or the, but um,
3: this thing of the, the first process, and what you were, we were talking about, you were talking about what happens in a the rehearsal. There is a strange thing, it's difficult to communicate, when rehearsals go well, yeah. this is, that something begins to grow in the room
1: yeah. and in
3: everyone's mind, and it's called the production. Yes. You know, And you, it's true that you each have very, you know, if someone does the sound, I always think I'm there to protect the text, and if a line isn't working, you ask, is it the actor's fault or is it mine? If it's mine, I go to the director and say, I've got to do something about mine. You know. But yeah. then, and and then the, the, you begin to be. T- the actors will start talking to you, and you come, you move out from the text, and this whole thing is growing, you know, in a sense. And then you say, is it working? Is it not? And a general sense of that run through was good. That was bad. You can't actually tell why. But the collective well, sense that's built in the rehearsal room I th- yes. is, is very, very strong, isn't it? And yes, I it's, think it's, what
1: happens yeah, is... is it, it seems to
3: have a colour and a feel and...
1: Yes, you, sometimes yeah. people say, oh, it's week three. Um, yeah. And um, what I always notice um, is that sometimes as soon as... Uh, that it It's piecemeal to begin with. Yeah. And it's, it feels fake and odd, um, and then what I notice always is that when it starts working, and I don't know if, if you two agree, is, is that it feels like the air has got much more viscous. Yes. And it, it, it feels like you're, you're in, you know, seriously, the magic of theater. Yeah. That suddenly something starts it's the it's what we were talking about. I was, I was saying about the invisible. Yeah. That suddenly this structure that you've made. Yeah. Suddenly starts carrying it, everybody. Yeah. And everything, and then, it, and it usually happens quite late.
3: Yes, I tend to stay away in, it, in scratchy week.
1: Yes, I do. I, I say the I scratchy weeks. Well,
3: scratchy because actors week, yes. are not quite off the book, they're, oh, exactly. they're, you know. They're to, you think you better let them get on with it. And I always find that you've got to try. If there is a problem, yeah. you've got to. Usually, a new play, you'll have four weeks. You no. Know.
1: Yeah. In well, a big subsidised house, maybe have longer six, than
3: that. But, uh, but they'd be broken up because yeah. they'd be on, in other shows a lot of yeah. them. You know. So so if you if there is trouble with the text, you've got to fix it in the first first fortnight. Yeah. Also, you earn your spurs with the actors. If if you realise that a particular thing is, you know, you you write a better speech overnight, you know, the feeling of relief in the room.
1: Yes.
3: (laughs) Said, oh, God, he knows his onions, you know. Ronnie, before we open
2: it out, uh, we've been throughout the week, and particularly at the beginning with what I said on, on, on Monday and what we're going to talk about tomorrow night, about the difference between working with an individual playwright and Pure devising processes, but we know that's really a spectrum of relationships. Mm-hmm. Some of which we've talked about, many of which we've talked about uh, this evening. Um, but one of the sort of principles of the, of, of, you know, parts of the devising principle is everybody enters the room at the same time. In other words, you, you know, you gather together, unlike the playwright writing the play, running the first yeah. lap and then handing the baton on to others. Um, that actually uh, everybody starts at the same point. And that's been one of the reasons, I think, where, why a lot of performance companies, live art companies, devising companies, whatever one likes to call it, um, have tended not to use writers, believing that writers would be unfamiliar and unhappy in that process. Now, you've been a pioneer in working with uh, at least two, Companies who had previously been associated with not using a writer, uh, and, and and one is Sound and Fury, for whom you wrote Kursk, which was a, a play about uh, a submarine, uh, and the other was was with Frantic, who Frantic Assembly, with whom you've written three plays. Um, talk about that process.
1: Um, first of all, I, I'm I'm not a pioneer with with um, Frantic Assembly because their their raison d'être is they they. They get, they do. Um, um, commissioner playwright always have. Oh So, right. so before yeah. me, um, as Mark Ravenhill did, mm. the wonderful pool, no water, and yeah. Abby Morgan, and I can't remember what it was called. But 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 they always do that. But um, frantic assembly for me was was you know one of those wonderful epiphanies where you think, oh. oh I understand something that I didn't. And Frantic Assembly are, you know, they are a physical company that use words. And I went in and there was a two week workshop with, with the first time. And there were two dancers and two actors. And they just made them do things like they do Dangerous Bed. And they'd say, well, you have this much space and um, you're in bed and you some and, and just explore it. And of course, it immediately to me looked like a couple in a bed having a dark time because they invaded each other's spaces. And the dancers invaded it quite balletically and the um, the actors invaded it quite... Characterfully, and i I went away I think it's a, you know in the first week of, of of the workshop, and I thought and
2: this is before and think the subject's been decided on the subject
1: was th- um, it was called Stockholm, and it was about um, Stockholm syndrome in a relationship in a very airless relationship
2: but, and but you hadn 't written any text yet this was, no no, but
1: I went away immediately because I was so fired up. And what I did was I wrote the text version of what they'd shown me and took it back. And, of course, it didn't work. And the big revelation that I I made was that um, if you're doing physical work, if you're you're writing for physical theatre, both the text, the text and the physical theatre, want to occupy the same space, which is in the centre, in the limelight. And and then I had to go away, and, and I just did... I watched for two weeks. Um,
2: and so what... I mean, d- does that just mean writing less? Does it mean that you're leaving space for other things to, to occur? I mean, what does that actually mean in terms of the writing?
1: It, it means, I think, that... Um, because it's the only way I can do it is, is I go away and write something and come back and then try it, um, which I've done each three, t- each three times I've worked with, with Frantic. But um, one has to decide that the best version has to win. If there's, you know, if, if it's served best by text, then that happens, and the physicality has to retreat. And if it's it's um, served best by physicality, which then
2: and are those you decisions made it? in the rehearsal room? I mean, you you, you enter with a, with a scene between the couple. I mean, I think you you once told me there's a scene which you decided to abandon because the best way of writing it was to write a stage direction: they eat each other. Yes. Um, but but in that, it's obviously, you know, is this, like, a, you know, a musical? Is this best served by a song or is yeah. this best served? But you're talking about something... A, a, a,
1: well, I've had
3: three well, different... Are saying you wrote scenarios more? No. You, know, if, if, no. If you wrote right di- dialogue. No, because I can't do or, that. You, yeah.
1: you know, it, I, mm. I find it impossible because, because we have to have the structure we think we're using. Yes. And we have to, you know, we have to make the vase. We can't do vast pieces. It it has to be the full thing, but some of it may get changed, and I've had three different experiences. The first one, I wrote it, and we hardly changed a thing. The second one, uh, it was called Beautiful Burnout, and it was about boxing, and I wrote a really good um, um, boxing bout done through... um, people saying what was happening. Right. Um, which is now at the back of the drawer because the, the the boys, as I call them, Scott and Steve said, we're just going to do it without words. And, and you say the
2: boys, and I thought, is that the actors? Um, how much, I mean, you do, I mean, Scott and Steve are absolutely associated. I mean, Frantic is their company and, yes. and, and, and their... You know, that's the the brand, as it were. Um, I mean, how much were you taking, also, stuff from the actors, or was it Scott and Steve saying, "Let's try this," and 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 then we'll um, choose which bits go in. I mean, it's, how it's collective somehow, did it become?
1: Somehow, in 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 the physical stuff they set up, I I see stories. It's it's you know that's it, it's. It's pure creative so, goals So it looks us.
3: like an improvisation. You, you use it like an improvisation you? and it will trigger a story for you. Well, exactly.
1: Yeah? Yes. But it, it's um, an improvisation, which is mostly movement and dance. Yes. And, yes, I understand that, And which I find wonderful um, because the words start yeah. filling my head
2: and there was uh, i think the, the third play the believers um, which is sort of quite a conventional notion i mean it's two couples who get thrown together by the weather what and then something terrible happens well well yes there's a lot of story in it yes i, I mean there's more story in it than there is in stockholm i would That's true. I, I would adventure yes. um, and it was rather i mean it's rather marvelous to see A a physical theatre piece in which the story was so prominent, and I wonder, did did they feel? I mean, did they feel that's what they that's what they wanted? That they wanted some. I mean, you you were saying you provide narrative. Is that something that both they and you felt is the role of the writer?
1: No, I. I, All I can say about the role of the writer is (laughs) is. It's providing the, what one believes is the structure, um, and I don't even know if that's story, and um, a notion because uh, you know a set of um, propositions that make a, make a make the audience believe that. The character is real and and a real person. It's and a course, dynamic, isn't it? Yes, it's, could, a yeah, so it's a dynamic. A, yes, it's
3: Manichean or yes, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. build to destroy. It's Aphrodite and her yeah. adversary, like in Freud. It's that's yeah. that's what we see. <laughs> yeah.
2: And so you're you're. I mean, both of you are saying, I think, the same thing. That I mean, both of you look at the work that's presented to you, which might be before you. Right in a workshop, yeah. it might be during the same process or a bit of both. Yeah. And you kind of see patterns in that work yeah. that yeah. can contribute to the creation of a whole thing.
0: Yeah,
3: and, and that's- In a simple way, like I remember with the Epsom dance, uh, they were doing an improvisation of two preachers and how they preach. And uh, I, I suddenly knew, I didn't tell them, I knew. I said, he's an alcoholic he's going to lapse in the play. Yeah. And that right. wasn't in the improvisation. Yes. It was just, and they, they, they were doing a very, very good thing about manic preaching. Yeah. You know. And suddenly you see, you see, this is what we're talking about. Yes, You exactly. see that
1: yeah.
3: a, cur- a curious dynamism in, yes. the, in the improvisation that they're doing.
1: It's no. so- yes, it sounds, yeah. sorry, I'm really quick. It sounds real, what you just described, it sounded exactly like um, the feeling of, of um, in Stockholm with the anthropologist watching us. Somebody was doing something and she was just doing this with her. She was talking, but she was doing this. Yeah. And I, I grabbed the anthropologist and said, oh, she broke her arm. And you know, and immediately I, I knew yeah. like you knew yeah. um, what were the things you were going to knit together. Yes. Yeah.